This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. He is Bruce Bartlett. And if you're not familiar with uh, Bruce, you really should be. Uh, He started his career uh, working for Ron Paul and then Jack Kemp. He helped to put together what eventually became the Kemp Roth tax cuts, which were passed by Ronald Reagan in the early 80s. Eventually, due to some of the policies of George Bush, he broke with the far right and became an independent voice and a critic of the move of the GOP away from its traditional roots to areas never seen before. I know I'm going to get all sorts of angry emails from people, um, mostly because I agree with pretty much everything Bruce says, and some of you are going to disagree with uh, everything he says. Um, You can send me angry emails at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I don't know how else to, to describe this other than just a tour de force conversation about a from a certain segment of the political firmament, which is the conservative Republican never Trumpers, and Bruce Bartlett is a perfect um, example of that. Previously, we've had Mike Murphy, who was uh, Jeb Bush's campaign manager, who gave a slightly different perspective, uh, and we try and bring all sorts of of perspectives onto the show to discuss these things. I found it really fascinating, and I expect you will too. So with no further ado, my conversation with Bruce Bartlett. I have an extra special guest today. His name is Bruce Bartlett, and he has a storied career in politics in Washington, D.C. He has held senior policy roles in both the Reagan and George H.W. Bush administration. He started in in D.C. working with Congressman Ron Paul on the Banking Committee. He has also worked uh, with Jack Kemp. He was executive director of the Joint Economic Committee of Congress. Uh, He's written for various publications, including the New York Times Economics blog for the Washington Post and other fine publications. He is the author of multiple best-selling books, including... Reaganomics, Supply-Side Economics in Action, and Imposter, How George W. Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy. Most recently, he wrote the book The Truth Matters, A Citizen's Guide to Separating Facts from Lies and Stopping Fake News in Its Tracks. Bruce Bartlett, welcome to Bloomberg. Happy to be here. So that's quite the CV. Let, let's Let's begin by... Going to your political beginnings, you, in 1976, began working for a then-unknown congressman named Ron Paul out of Texas. Uh, What did you do for him, and and how did you guys ultimately find each other? Well, at that time, uh, Texas was a very solidly Democratic state. Uh, You know, the old story down there is the Democrats were yellow dog Democrats. They'd vote for a a yellow dog if it was running as a Democrat. (laughs) And uh, there was only two other Republicans in the Republican uh, House delegation. And uh, one of the Democrats uh, resigned because he got a a higher level appointment of some kind. And so they had to have a special election in uh, April of 1976. And I saw a brief story uh, in the Washington Post in which uh, 
this this fellow Ron Paul, whom of course I'd never heard of, uh, said, was was elected Republican uh, to a Democratic seat, and he was quoted in the article saying he was to the right of Barry Goldwater. Well, which, no, which is hard to imagine. Well, uh, in, in, at the time, that sounded like a good idea to me. I was very conservative <laughs> at that time, uh, libertarian, and uh, so. And I was I was just finishing up some work at graduate school and was looking around for a, a real job. So out of the blue, I just sent him a, a letter and uh, uh, some things I had published. And uh, a few days later, I get a call from his secretary, and I interviewed with him. And I remember when I entered his office, he had uh, a bookcase. And in the bookcase was every book published by the Foundation for Economic Education. Which is still around and a robust website. That's right. And uh, FEE.org, if I'm remembering yeah, correctly. Yeah. And, uh, but at the time, it was, it was the, the most well-known, well-established, free-market-oriented uh, think tank in the United States. And I had already published a couple of articles in its little journal, which was called The Freeman. And so I think that's probably what caught his attention. And when I saw all these books, I knew I was in pretty good shape. So what was it like working with him? He, that was, he was on the banking committee. Uh, I don't think people had any idea of how his politics would evolve to really full-blown libertarianism, uh, nor did people understand that he would one day mount a fairly um, significant run for the presidency. M multiple runs for the president, and that his son would become a United States senator. Yeah, I mean, at the time, we thought what we were doing was very quixotic, and uh, and I think uh, we were just trying to make a point, and in order to do so, uh, you know, Ron liked to, to do things in a very outrageous manner. Uh, for example, one of the things he most enjoyed was being the only no vote against some piece of legislation that passed, uh, would otherwise have passed unanimously. And since he was a medical doctor, he got ta uh, people would call him Doctor No, and That's he very he funny. very much enjoyed that. How did you move from Ron Paul in Texas to Jack Kemp up in upstate New York? Well, the problem was that Ron was elected in a special election in April of nineteen seventy six, and therefore had to run for election for for a full seat that very same year. And unfortunately, he was defeated in in his first uh, bid for. Uh, or I guess he was his first effort at re-election, and uh, and so he was defeated. And uh, I was looking around for a job, and uh, uh, one of the women in the office said she had heard that uh, Jack Kemp, who I really only knew about as a football player, I mm -hmm. remember watching him in the 1965 AFL uh, championship game he, when he was playing for the Buffalo Bills, and uh, he had been elected to Congress in 1970. And he always said that the reason he was elected is because he threatened to come come back and play for the Bills another year if he lost. <laughs> and, That's very funny. So, so you, you leave Ron Paul uh, after he was defeated in, what was that, 78 or 76? 1976. 76, and you join um, Jack Kemp's office. Kemp was tapped <laughs> by Reagan to help push forward uh, a very big set of tax cuts. Tell us a well, little bit about— Well, that was much later. So I went to work with Kemp, and he was uh, very interested in tax policy. And he had come under the influence of a guy named Jude Winiski, sure. uh, who in turn had come under the influence of 
two economists, one named Robert Mundell, who later won the Nobel Prize, and Arthur Laffer, who is still uh, out there and very active in, in, in tax affairs. One of the things uh, Jack was very interested in was the Kennedy tax cut of the 1960s, which he felt had done a lot to invigorate the economy. And remember, in 1977, inflation was the overwhelmingly large problem. Yep. And this tended to make it very hard to do any kind of fiscal policy because anything that would increase the deficit was considered per se inflationary. Mm -hmm. But what Jack argued, uh, uh, really based on Mundell's theories, was that if you enacted some kind of policy that increased the production of goods and services, then this would be anti-inflationary, you see. And so that was... Meaning you would have more supply and it should not see runaway prices, the additional supply should actually keep a cap on prices. Well, well yeah, I, if you could just hold the line on the money supply mm -hmm. and, and then do something that would raise uh, supply, then you should get a diminishing uh, a diminishment of, of inflation. At least that was our theory and our argument. And uh, so, you know, one day I remember he, uh, you know, just said to me, Bruce, why don't we, instead of just talking about the Kennedy tax cut, why don't we just do it and just reintroduce the same legislation? Well, obviously, you couldn't literally do that because the Kennedy tax cut was already in effect. So we had to find something that replicated it in in, ma in current terms. Remind us how, what were the top rates like under Kennedy? What was the actual impact of the cuts that were passed in the early 60s? Well, the, the, you have to remember that when Kennedy took office, all the World War II, Korea War tax rates were still in effect mm -hmm. because Eisenhower refused to cut them uh, on the grounds that he wanted to balance the budget. And, but Kennedy, remember, ran on saying he wanted to get the economy moving again. And so he's, uh, at that time, the top tax rate, in a federal marginal uh, statutory income tax rate was 91%. Amazing. And the bottom rate was, uh, I believe, 20%. Mm -hmm. And so he uh, cut those from, he cut the top rate down to uh, 70% and the bottom rate down to 14%. And that's where those rates were uh, when I s started working for Jack Kemp. Now, the real problem was, remember, inflation. And everybody was getting pushed up into higher tax brackets. Because uh, inflation um, at the time... Tax brackets um, were not adjusted for inflation. You could just be inflated into a higher bracket. That's right. And so workers were getting cost of living adjustments, which just kept them even. But they were actually worse off because they were getting pushed into higher brackets that had been originally put in to place to tax people whose real incomes were very substantially higher mm. than theirs. And actually, the rich... We're, we're in somewhat of a better shape because if you're already in the top bracket, you can't get pushed any higher. Right. Uh, but there were some other problems. Uh, capital gains was a very serious problem because a lot of the gains that were being realized at that time was pure inflation. Mm -hmm. And so you were, you were being, con it was confiscatory taxation. You were mm -hmm. paying a tax on, on zero real gains. So what did Kemp propose doing based on where taxes were? In the late 70s, Well, he early proposed 80s. cutting the top rate from 70% to 50% mm -hmm. and the bottom rate from 14% to 10%. And so we just 
we just asserted that this is essentially the Kennedy tax cut. Another and, 20 points off the top and a third off the bottom. And yeah, so we argued that everybody was getting a tax rate cut and all the rates in between were cut at about the, uh, by, by the same amount. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we introduced this legislation in uh, the middle of 1977. In the meantime, uh, a senator named uh, Bill Roth from Delaware had contacted Kemp saying he really liked what he was saying and suggested they work together. And so we asked him if he wanted to be to co-sponsor this Kennedy tax cut legislation. He was very interested in doing so, and that's how it came, became the Kemp-Roth bill. Uh, but in 1977, uh, there was not much interest in this legislation because Republicans were still very wedded to the balanced budget idea, and they didn't want to cut taxes unless they cut spending simultaneously by an equal amount. This was the widespread view in the Republican caucus. So, so we were having trouble getting co-sponsors, and of course inflation was a serious problem, and all the conventional administration economists said, if you enact a big tax cut now, it'll, it'll be massively inflationary. We'll have hyperinflation. So we had no support really from anybody except these couple of people like Arthur Laffer. And uh, speaking of which, so 1980 comes mm -hmm. along. Ronald Reagan gets elected in a, in pretty much a landslide, not as big a landslide mm -hmm. as 84, but still substantially trounced uh, Jimmy Carter. Then what happened? How did we get from that to uh, all those tax cuts well, we saw uh, in the 80s? Well, there was something in the mid in between happened that's extremely important, which is. In 1978, they passed Proposition 13 in California. Mm -hmm. Now, remember, that was, that was a huge cut in the property tax rate. And the really important part about this is there were no accompanying spending cuts because the, everybody just said there's plenty of fat in the government. Let them worry about it. It's not our problem. We just want to pay less taxes. And when this was enacted... It led everybody in the United States, everybody in Washington, certainly, to believe, oh, my God, there's a tax revolt. we got to do something about this. And Kemp's legislation suddenly became the thing that every Republican wanted to be the sponsor of. And as you say, in 1980, when Ronald Reagan was running for president, he, he officially endorsed the Kemper-Roth bill and said, this is my legislation, this is what I will send to Congress if I'm elected, and, and he did. And it was signed into law in August of, of 1981. And what was the impact of those taxes? I think they're grossly exaggerated to this day in terms of their economic impact. You have to remember the, 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 the tax cut took effect in the middle of a huge recession. Mm -hmm. And so in that sense, it was very well-timed fiscal stimulus. But a lot of other but, – but, of course, the economy continued downward for – well over a year after the tax cut took effect. Let's talk a little bit about some of the changes that have taken place in politics over the past <laughs> 20 or 30 years that led you to really break with your conservative roots. And probably nothing epitomizes that more than the book you wrote, How George Bush Bankrupted America and Betrayed the Reagan Legacy. What led to this fairly dramatic pivot from the right to, I would say, the middle, other people would say the left. Uh, what what led to this? Oh, I can tell you very, very specifically, even give you the exact date. Now, up until 2003, I was a very conventional Republican conservative. Uh, I was very happy with 
in the Republican Party. And then on November 22nd, uh, 2003, uh, you may remember, uh, we woke up to, and, and when we read the newspapers, we found out that in the middle of the night, the Republican Congress had passed something called the Medicare Part D sure. program. And they literally uh, kept the vote open for three hours while they twisted arms and did all kinds of things uh, to ram this piece of legislation through, which was the creation of a new entitlement program. With big, with big giveaways to the industry itself as well. Well, that's right. It was a, it was a $400 billion cost, not one penny of which was paid for. And they explicitly wrote into law that the Medicare program was prohibited from negotiating with the pharmaceutical companies in the same way that every single private health insurance plan does. So they have to pay the list price, whatever they charge, $10,000 a dosage, right. the Medicare program has to pay it, and there's nothing they can do about it. Was, was that a sop to the industry? Or was of that course it was a sop to, to the industry. Or was it an attempt to bankrupt Medicaid? No, I don't think they were consciously trying to bankrupt Medicare. What I think is they were trying to throw billions and hundreds of billions of dollars at their pals in the in, in the in the pharmaceutical industry. I think that they were, and the Republicans felt that they had to do this because they knew the Democrats would the first chance they got. But the Democrats would make sure that there were provisions in there to control. Uh, drug prices, and they absolutely did not want that to happen. So they had to do take the initiative to pass this legislation themselves. And, uh, uh, and I was just horrified because I thought Republicans existed to cut entitlement programs, reduce spending, and creating a new entitlement program was just the opposite of what I thought the party existed to do. So you sat down and wrote a book called Imposter uh, about George Bush— what was the response? And you published a variety of different columns about it while it was in the works. What was the response from your colleagues on the right? Well, first of all, I, I, I started writing very, very negative columns about George W. Bush, and at the time was working for a conservative think tank, which uh, basically said, stop doing this or you're going to be fired. So, so that was what led me to decide to write the book, which I had originally thought I might have to do uh, anonymously. Mm -hmm. uh, but anyway, I wrote this book during uh, 2005, and uh, to my surprise, there was interest in the publishing industry about it, and uh, it came out in, in early 2006. A Reagan advisor with strong right-wing conservative mm -hmm. credentials writes a book calling George Bush, uh, the person who's bankrupting America and betraying the Reagan legacy, was it any surprise that a conservative think tank said you're out? Uh, in retrospect, I was rather naive about all of this. Uh, but I see, I thought that I had written a book. And if you read it, it's, it reads like an academic book. It's mm -hmm. very, very heavily referenced. And not only that, virtually every person in the entire book who's cited or quoted is a good, solid conservative. Because I was, in a way, distilling what a lot of conservatives were saying. And I thought if people simply read the book, they, they'd be uh, persuaded by it. They'd agree with me. Isn't it shocking you could go through this whole process of putting all these facts on paper, and yet still the same myths and misunderstandings persist? People don't want to believe that which they don't want to believe. 
That's right. And uh, it was really my first experience with this whole phenomenon. I'm not sure, quite sure what, what, what we call it now. Where Confirmation bias, selective yeah. perception. But uh, uh, There's another quote of yours I have to mention, because at this point I think you're just trying to get your conservative allies and friends angry. You wrote, No one has been more correct in his analysis and prescriptions for the economy's problems than Paul Krugman, a prominent Keynesian economist. He is the boogeyman for yeah. the far right, and yet you're saying this guy's been more right than anyone else. Uh, I don't remember exactly when I said that, but I do remember saying it, and, and I agree with that. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your most recent book, The Truth Matters, A Citizen's Guide to Separating Facts and Lies and Stopping Fake News in Its Tracks. First question is, the truth matters. Isn't that self-evident? Don't we, don't we all believe the truth matters? Uh, one would think so, but uh, there's obviously a great deal of evidence uh, to the contrary, at least as far as uh, Donald Trump is concerned. Uh, I mean, you've probably read this recent story where he continues to insist that he owns a Renoir, an original Renoir. Now, has he actually said that? Oh, yes. Because the Chicago Art Institute recently came out and said the Renoir pictured in Trump's uh, apartment the original is here. Yeah. We have the provenance. We could tra trace it back from when it was painted to yeah. who it was sold to. We know exactly who and who and where it is. Yeah. How can Trump really believe that that's an original? He, he he simply continues to assert it, just as he asserts so many other things that are simply lies. Now, the reason I wrote the book is because I was horrified by the election results. You were. And were you surprised by them? Yes, well, I was. Okay. On, on election night, I, I mean, it was quite early in the evening when I saw the handwriting on the wall, uh, when I saw that Hillary was, was not, hadn't yet been called in states that I was quite certain she was going Virginia, to win. Virginia, North Carolina. Virginia, I knew that was a very bad sign. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I didn't stay up to watch the final results. Really? I, no, I just couldn't handle it. And in fact, I refused to read any of the news for about two months after the election, I was just sick to my stomach. Oh, you missed some fascinating things. Yeah, I imagine I did. <laughs> but uh, but as I you know got out of my stupor or whatever and uh, began to think about uh, what was going on, the thing that struck me was the problems of the media. Because uh, it seemed to me that it, that the media that had existed throughout most of our lifetimes, you know, when you, know, you had three major news broadcasts in the evening, you didn't have cable. Everybody got a newspaper delivered to their house. There were responsible newspapers that had a great deal of power and authority. They wouldn't have allowed any of this to happen. Right. And so I felt that the weakness of the media, of certain things that were going on in the nature and the structure of the media, uh, were very much to blame for the Trump phenomenon. So, so let's unpack that a little bit, because we have, we have a couple of things driving that. You have... The overall move to digital, which hurt newspaper classified everything from Craigslist to Amazon to Google, have all taken a big chunk of the traditional media's revenue stream. And so we've seen big cutbacks in newsrooms. We've seen consolidation. We've seen a lot of newspapers closing. And that's before we get to the rise of Facebook and fake news. Mm -hmm. These are all related phenomenon, obviously. The, the media don't have the economic strength to oppose a pop, 
you know, somebody, I won't say Trump is popular in the conventional sense, but he's obviously newsworthy and, and people paid an inordinate amount of attention. Whenever there was a story about him, it got lots of clicks. Somebody said that the media gave him, and I'm, I know I'm mangling this number, $2 billion, $8 billion worth of free coverage, and, and that's why he ran a fairly shoestring campaign, not a big budget. Uh, that's exactly correct. And, and, but worse, what they did is they tended, inadvertently I, perhaps, to normalize him. Mm-hmm. They, share, they shaved off the, the rough edges and didn't make him seem like the total clown that he in fact is and always has been. They, they, they felt like, how can we justify spending so much time covering this, this, this clown? We have to elevate him up so that he seems j- important enough to justify us giving him so much airspace, so many column inches of coverage. So now it's funny you say that because right, I'm a lifelong New Yorker. I, I'm going to oversimplify this, but most New Yorkers know who Donald Trump was before he ran for office, and he was kind of looked at as, yeah, the guy inherited a bunch of money, and he's kind of a, a, a goofball, but nobody really took him seriously. Some people thought he was a grifter. I know other people who talked about him not paying contractors and all the lawsuits and all that sort of stuff. But I think the average New Yorker (laughs) kind of looked at him and said, yeah, this guy isn't a serious candidate. It was shocking to those of us here that the rest of the country, he found such a robust resonance with. Well, I suppose you have to give the devil his due and say that however instinctively he figured this out, he did tap into a very deep strain of political and cultural trends that were really invisible, frankly, to even to pollsters. Let's focus on on the media itself and what you think they're doing wrong and what do they have to do to, to fix the problem they have with not being perceived as truthful <clears throat> or reliable. Well, I felt uh, when I when I conceived this book that uh, given the nature of the media environment, uh, people needed to know more about the nuts and bolts of how the news is, is created, how it's produced, how it's distributed. Uh, it, it's sort of like if you had a situation, perhaps not unlike someplace in Cuba, where you couldn't have a car unless you knew how to repair it yourself right. and maybe even build it from scratch. And so as, as the, the, the infrastructure of the media has t- started to sort of collapse – People are going to have to create their own uh, media for themselves. They have to curate their own news feed and to not just extent. rely on whatever That's right. is uh, forwarded uh, on Facebook. They, they, they can't rely on, on just reading a, a decent na- daily newspaper every day and feel that they knew know whatever they needed to know that day. Uh, many of the cable channels are rank uh, propaganda. Uh, the Fox News Channel is just literally a subsidiary of the Republican National Committee. Absolutely. Now, when you, when you say that, I, I don't dis- necessarily disagree, mm-hmm. but when I say that to Republican friends, mm-hmm. the answer I usually get is, well, the entire media landscape is completely liberal. Is well, that's that a lie they tell themselves to justify watching a, a, a media source that just lies continuously. But I will concede, and I say in the book— there was a time uh, uh, when the, I think the, the vast bulk of the mainstream media did tilt to the left. 
uh, perhaps not nearly as much as is conservatives thought they did, but there's no question that you, if you interviewed or talked to the typical New York Times, uh, Washington Post reporter circa the 1970s, they were clearly to the left of the, center. The data shows that reporters tended to be educated, urban, and younger. That all skewed to the left. Their editors tended to be also educated and urban, but higher earning and older. That skewed them a little more to the right. The theory was they would kind of balance each other out. Uh, has, has the liberal media trope, has that been wildly overstated? Or is it is it is there still truth to it? Or is it just uh, a little bit of truth and it's exaggerated for effect? Well, what I think happened is that beginning, I'm not sure precisely when, but let's say the nineteen mid-1990s or so, I think the, the, the mainstream media tried to tilt itself more towards the center. Mm -hmm. That is, they moved to the right from where they were, but they moved to the center, and, and I think they're, by and large, they stayed there. Now, what happened with Fox is I think they originally started more or less in the center. I think they were a pretty centrist center operation. Right, but, but not well, wildly extreme. Well, they were to the right of their competitors. Right. So they weren't really to the objective right. They were right relative. But what happened is when the, the, the rest of the media moved to the center, they then moved very far to the right. And I think especially 9-11 had a great deal to do that, with that's that. That's when they went full on off the rails right, and became... Right. Uh, so so let this is a good time to ask... What is the Overton window? You discuss this in the book, and it's fascinating. Well, we're basically talking about it right now. Is the window is is what you can see mm -hmm. out of uh, an ordinary window? You can see, let's say, a parade going by, but you can only see that little section of uh, what might be a long parade uh, that is right in front of your window. You can't see what's to the left. You can't see what's to the right. But if the window itself moves to the right. You may think you're still seeing the same uh, part of the parade, but you're not. You're now seeing the right part of the parade, and so your perspective is distorted. And we were just talking about this. The mainstream mo media moved to the right and ended up in the center, and the Fox and, and the right-wing media moved much further to the right. But because the mainstream media is relatively still on the left, this allows the, those on the right to claim falsely that the media is left-wing and this justifies their being very very right-wing which they claim well we're simply offsetting what they're doing but in fact what they're doing is lying doing propaganda and distortion whereas the mainstream media is 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 still stuck trying to tell the truth bruce you don't mince words can you stick around a little bit sure. i have a lot more questions for you we have been speaking with Bruce Bartlett, former Reagan policy advisor on taxes and economics. Uh, if you enjoy this conversation, be sure and check out the podcast extras, where we keep the tape running and continue to talk about all things policy, media, and tax-based. Uh, be sure and check out my daily column. You can find that on BloombergView.com. Follow me on Twitter, at Ritholtz. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.
Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bruce, for doing this. I've been looking forward to having this conversation because I know you don't mince words. You say it as you see it, and you have been on both sides of the political spectrum. I know no one better situated to observe the current political media, uh, whatever situation than you. There's, there's few people who have done the sorts of things that you've done. Well, I tell you, when I first broke with the the GOP over the Medicare uh, Part D legislation, I thought I didn't really break with the GOP. What I did is I broke with the elected the, Republicans the, who were not honoring well, I was, their I, I was breaking with Bush uh, right. more than anything else, and I thought I was helping my party. I still consider myself to be a Republican. And what I was afraid of is that Bush's incompetence and screw-ups were, were just teeing the ball up for the Democrats to win in 2008. And what I thought, remember my book came out in 2006, is I thought if we had a debate about why Bush was a failure, maybe we could nominate somebody who would have a chance of of, of, of winning in 2008. And everybody thought I was being a traitor huh. for even raising doubts about the possibility that that the next Republican wouldn't just win in a heartbeat. And I didn't know anything about Obama. He wasn't even on my radar screen. I just knew that from from long history that a two terms of one presidency, one party, you know, you tend to get the next one. And I thought there was a very, very small chance, but I thought, you know, purging Bushism was was part of what needed to be done. And this is what everybody got upset about me about. I think it was the the old, you know, you're, the, the little kid saying the emperor's not wearing any clothes phenomenon is you're just not allowed to say certain things in the Republican Party. And we've seen this now just the last few days with Senators Corker and Flake, where they're just being savaged by their own party for saying, simply for saying out loud what they have said. We've been talking about this behind closed doors with other members of the uh, Republicans in the Senate uh, for months and months, and we can't take it anymore. We're going public. And, and everybody's just shocked and, and upset. They're afraid they're going to get primaried from the right. And they will. Uh, you have this absolute lunatic named Steve Bannon, <laughs> whom I actually know slightly. I was in a movie that he directed called Generation Zero. You can go to IMDb, imdb.com and find it. The entire movie is available on YouTube. And, and I know a few other people who had cameos A lot of people movie. were in that movie. And were you? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, I actually got to go to a party at the uh, Breitbart Mansion mm -hmm. on Capitol Hill, and I met Steve Bannon. And uh, I don't remember too much about the nature of our conversation, but at least I, I did meet him long before. This is 10 years ago or so. Mm. Right after the financial crisis, exactly. That's right, that's right, around 2009 or 10, thereabouts. Uh, but I think it was before the big Republican victory in the elections that year. Uh, so so they were still sort of on the outs. But now, of course, they're very much on the inside. So here's, here's the issue that um, I don't even know if this is pushback to you, but uh, people always seem to be surprised when I say uh, I was a Jacob Javits Republican. Mm -hmm. Just uh, I have a libertarian streak. I don't think the government should tell people who could get elected, what they can smoke and consume, 
uh, whether or not they can have an abortion. And all those sort of things are very paternalistic overreach Mm -hmm. from government. So I tended to affiliate and believe more um, uh, with the libertarian Republican Mm -hmm. side. And Jacob Javits was the traditional Mm -hmm. moderate Northeastern Republican. And what's astonishing is the party from that era, 60s, 70s, even early 80s, the modern Republican Party does not remotely resemble that previous Republican Party. So when people were pushing back at you saying, hey, this is not what we stand for, really the party was moving elsewhere and mm-hmm. you weren't keeping up. Is is that a fair assessment? You, you well, didn't leave the party so much as it, it left the part of the political spectrum where you were residing. Well, the, the, the deep historical trend that explains what you're talking about is, of course, what, what goes by the Southern strategy. Mm-hmm. That is, you had for, for 100 years or more after the Civil War a, a, a weird situation in which you had very conservative, politically, cons- uh, culturally, economically, and so on, a group of people in the South who, for purely historical reasons, associated with the liberal party. And there were too many of them to be pushed out, so they had to be accommodated. Meaning meaning Republicans or, or whoever was in the Deep South didn't feel comfortable voting for the party of Lincoln because of the vestiges of, of the— Well, it was simply a waste of time. You couldn't right. win. Right. Uh, and uh, and the, the one group of people who you could have gotten support from were, of course, African Americans who were— widely, you know, had their votes uh, suppressed. Mm-hmm. So there was simply, there, you, you simply couldn't win. So if you wanted a career in politics, you had no choice but to be a Democrat. Huh. And now let, let's talk about the modern era. You go from Bushism to eight years of um, Obama. I, I argued in 08, in the middle of the financial <clears throat> crisis, it didn't matter who the Republicans put up they were going to lose because the financial crisis was, hey, first 9-11, now this happened on your watch, we're, we're tapping out, we're mm-hmm. done. Um, I, I get that sense, whether it was subconscious or, or verbalized, that's what the <laughs> middle was thinking. And you, you could arguably say 9-11 was something that could, either it couldn't have been stopped or we just didn't understand how, how significant the threat was. But the financial crisis, hey, it's coming in the last year of eight. It's very hard to pass the buck on that, even though there were forces that were 10, 20, 30 years in the making that led to it. So I I thought the Republicans were destined to lose in 08. I didn't feel that either party was a surefire victor in 2016. What, What do we take away from the election in 2016? Well, it's lots of people have dissected that election and will continue to do so, and it, it's pretty clear that uh, Hillary Clinton had deep, deep flaws as a candidate, and and everybody knew that. But, but she, but so did he. So did Donald Trump. Well, Neither of, of them were good candidates. No, I agree. But uh, I thought Hillary was going to win. Uh, but then again, I always assumed that she was doing competent polling in places like. Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, right. and knew what her situation was and could put resources into these places rather than just pretend, thinking, oh, they're in the bag. I don't need to waste my time there. I'm going to have a big uh, rally the night before the election in Philadelphia, you know, right. with my pals, you know, Beyonce and Jay-Z or whoever. You know, 
Pennsylvania for sure was an issue. Michigan, Virginia, yeah. North Carolina. There was a big article recently that some of the voter suppression rules in Wisconsin mm-hmm. may have thrown that state. So well, I'll, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt yeah. with one state, but the rest, there's no other way to say it. She blew it. But look, if she had won, she would have won by the skin of her teeth. Mm-hmm. And you can imagine what the Republicans would be doing to savage her. I mean, she'd have sure. already been impeached by now. So I, I've Do come we think around. she would have been impeached already? Quite possibly. Just, Look, they, they just started a new investigation of, of Hillary's involvement in some uranium sale. Right. Uh, you know, they, they never, you know, you nothing know the Nothing about joke. Niger, but we're still talking about Benghazi. That's and, right. And I mean, Republicans, what you can always say of them is they, they never learn and they never forget. And huh. so they will be dredging up these things for the rest of our lives. Which, which, so raises, so. which raises a, a question, because I don't think— you know, I, I never want to draw false equivalencies. 2018, hypothetically, the Congress is retaken by the Democrats. Are we going to see impeachment proceedings against President uh, Trump? Quite possibly. Uh, depends. Uh, I think the Democrats have a, a better chance of retaking the House than the Senate. I think it's going to be tough in the Senate. Senate's well, a real long shot. House is probably 50-50 or better. Yeah, it's, it's within— uh, uh, striking distance. Uh, but the point is, uh, that I was getting at, is even if they win, they're not going to have an overwhelming majority. It's not going to be like 1974, right. where you know a huge Democratic majority comes in. And so I think that uh, they're, and they'll have their hands full just trying to stop uh, some of the Trump initiatives that more than likely will still be uh, I think we'll still be talking about tax reform in 2018. I don't believe that they have the competence or the wherewithal to pass anything, uh, certainly not this year, and I don't think next year either. So let me ask you another question, and I've shared this with some of my Democratic friends. Um, Trump is makes a lot of noise, and, and maybe he bothers you on Twitter, and maybe he's a little bit of an embarrassment internationally. But he's not competent. He's never run a real organization. He's mm-hmm. never run a large business. He certainly has never run a state or a city. He's going to get nothing done, and he's just going to piss everybody off. On the other hand, if you wish him gone, well, say what you will about Vice President Pence. He was a fairly competent governor of a fairly substantial size state, and he knows how to do politics. Pence will get a lot more legislation through than Trump ever could. So be careful what you wish for if Trump is gone. Now you're dealing with a competent, even further uh, right individual. What What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think Tr- Pence is nominally more competent, but that's damning him with the faintest possible okay. praise. Uh, but, he's, but he's such a religious fanatic. Yeah. Uh, I think it would be like having Jeff Sessions, really, as, as president. And, and and I wouldn't underestimate Trump's ability to get things done because he has absolutely no consistency. Right. I mean, he's willing to just flip 180 degrees from what he said yesterday, and what he really cares about is the art of the deal. He wants, Getting, he wants something in the win column. He doesn't care what it is. Pre, that's precisely right. So that and, sort of flexibility should have led him to get 
some sort of repeal and replace through. Why couldn't he get well, that Well, that, that issue is still open. As you know, uh, there, there are people in the Congress uh, working on uh, an Obamacare fix uh, that he has on, on various days said he supports or opposes. And I think, I think there's still something that at the end of the day could get across the finish line there. And he'll stand up there and pretend he never said anything right. negative about any of this stuff. That's, that's his strength. It's, of course, it's a weakness as well. But let's not underestimate the strength part. Let's call it an intellectual flexibility. <laughs> well, that's one way of putting it. <laughs> so we were talking before about the media moving, the mainstream media moving from somewhat left of center to center. And that just your your description in the truth matters reminded me of Stephen Colbert, uh-huh. who when he was uh, uh, doing the Colbert Report, <coughs> uh, one of his first things to go viral was lib- uh, reality has a well known liberal bias. Is that is that any truth to that? Or oh, I think that's absolutely true. I think part of the problem with uh, those on the right is many of them are, are very religious. And they are very accustomed to taking things on faith. It could be ideology. It could be could belief be system. It could be faith. Right. It doesn't and I matter. think it's very easy for them to just kind of just gloss over the fact that facts don't fit their worldview, and and to create an alternative universe in which they do. When cognitive dissonance writ large. Uh, that's one way of putting it. And, so so how do they rationalize when the Pope comes out and says, hey, climate change is real, and and we were given the earth, and you therefore should be working to protect it, not despoiling it? How, how do the conservatives rationalize, well, he's just the Pope? Well, as far as I can see, even Catholics have pretty much, or con- I should say Republican Catholics, pretty much ignore uh, what the Pope said. I mean, look at the fact that we are ambassador to the Vatican is a woman who's an admitted adulterer. Okay, Callista new- Gingrich. That's right. It's well was it known. Six year affair. Admitted, yeah, they had. It's well known that she had an affair with right. Newt while he was still married. Right. And 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 he, of course, he's been married three times. Right. I doubt that he had his marriages annulled. Uh, and so he by the church. You by mean, the church. Legitimately. So and and these are paragons of. Catholicism. Now, I mean, isn't that isn't that Trump just kind of tweaking the Pope because the Pope has said not nice things about him? Perhaps. I think he mostly just doesn't care. Uh, <laughs> you know, Newt called him up and said, "My wife is a big Catholic. She really wants to be ambassador of the uh, to the Vatican." Wait, and he, he said, said, "My wife is a big Catholic." Hold that whole adultery thing yeah. aside. Well, I'm I'm just hypothesizing okay. how this came about. <laughs> Newt asked for a favor, and Trump said, "Sure, why not? You want to be ambassador? You want to? Do it? I don't care." And because he sh- clearly has shown absolutely no interest in the highest level appointments in his administration. I mean, it's quite clear that the Secretary of State hates him. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I, I don't know. I mean, who knows what Kelly is going through Kelly's mind these days when he's forced to stand up there and tell rank lies about uh, uh, what this woman, this congresswoman said at an event they had videotape of. And he he won't say he, okay, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. I misremembered. He stands up there and says, I stand by the lie that I said the other day and I'm not changing it. Who are you going to believe, me or your lying eyes? Yeah, it's uh, one of those jokes. It's, you know, 
someone had said that nobody comes out of the Bush administration with their reputation intact, which really wasn't true because there are a handful of people on the economic side. Greg Mankiw is back at, at uh, Harvard. Harvard teaching, and Richard Clarida is at PIMCO, and uh, those are just two off the top of my head, although certainly some people suffered some reputational damage, the neocons and a bunch of other people involved in the Iraq war. I get the sense that this administration is just a reputation-devouring machine. Is anybody going to come out of this administration reputation See, intact? One reason I think that you haven't seen more people leave is because there's no place for them to go. They're stuck. They're stuck. I mean, to literally have a paycheck coming in, uh, they have to stay there and maybe hope for the best. Aren't most of many of them wealthy and or billionaires? Oh, not well. If you're talking about the cabinet, sure, yeah. guys like Steve Mnuchin and Rex Tillerson, Wilbur Ross, are, and go down the fa- list, sure, fabulously wealthy. But I mean, the 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 people who do the real work, you know, the 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 assistant secretaries and the and people of that sort, the White House staff. They're just paid whatever they get paid, fifty or hundred thousand dollars a year, and now and many of them now have to hire private lawyers because they were involved in the campaign. And you saw the other day Trump was offering to pay some of their legal expenses, uh, and uh, I, I think some of these people are, are really, really hurting. That, that's interesting. Uh, my pet theory about why so many political appointed positions uh, are unfilled is Trump didn't expect to win, didn't want to win. Everybody else has a list of here are the 3,000 people we're going to bring with us. He was scrambling on November 10th to, all right, who are we going to name Secretary of State? Who are we going to? It, it seemed like they were wholly unprepared for the requirements of office because they— But it's even worse than that because they apparently did absolutely nothing between Election Day and January 20th. They came, He was just as unprepared— the day he took the oath of office as he was the day he won the election. Did not hit the ground running. Not exactly, no. So let, let's talk a little bit about some of the, the other items in The Truth Matters. And I also want to talk about Reaganomics, supply-side economics in action. There's a line that you said, and I'm going to say two things, and they're a little contradictory, Um but I think uh, I think they are, are somewhat consistent. First, you you wrote a Washington Post column headlines. I helped to create the GOP tax myth. Trump is wrong. Tax cuts don't equal growth. So the first question is, what are the benefits of tax cuts and and or fiscal stimulus? Well, I think you have to look at it from at least from the theory of what the supplies of what the Republicans say happens when you cut taxes. They believe, basically, in the Ayn Randian great man theory, that the wealthy carry the rest of us on their backs, and their incentives count for everything. The average guy contributes nothing. It's the it's the wealthy who do everything. Are you overstating that, or do you? No, think I that's... think that this is what they believe in their heart of hearts, and so that's why they're obsessed with the top rate of taxation, and why they're obsessed with getting it down no matter what. The problem is they also want to be able to say that tax cuts benefit the average person. The problem is you can't help the average person 
with federal income tax cuts because they basically don't pay any. They pay a lot of payroll taxes, yes, right. but uh, they they pay uh, the uh, families with incomes below the median are paying virtually nothing in terms of income. Median taxes. being around fifty three thousand or yeah, so something a year. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in the aggregate. No family with an income above forty thousand pays any federal in- or below forty thousand right. pays any federal income taxes at all. So, so they have to make up uh, some way of claiming that these people will benefit, and that's why they've come up with this crackpot theory that wages will rise by at least four thousand dollars and maybe as much as nine thousand dollars if you pass this big cut in the corporate income tax rate there is no credible think tank economist anybody who's looked at the numbers it's just wholly fabricated out of whole cloth it's just complete nonsense so so let me throw another quote at you can i just say one more thing about this if you go, it's very easy to go to bls.gov and look up the data for uh, wages, real wages. Start in 1986 and look at what happened to average real median wages, and you'll see that after the 1986 Act, which lowered the top personal income tax rate from 50 to 28 percent, which Huge is much lower, yeah. and they lowered the corporate tax rate from 46 percent to 34 percent. I mean, this is like you know the best tax reform imaginable. And what happened to wages is they fell for 10 solid years after the 86 Act. It was only after the 93 tax increase that wages started to rise again. So you don't believe, is it safe to say, that, well, let me, let me, let me restate that. Another quote of yours Supply-side economics was appropriate for the 70s and 80s. Supply-side arguments do not fit contemporary conditions. So explain what is so different today versus 25 and 30 years ago that makes supply-side arguments just not work here. Well, look, we in the early 80s, in the late 70s, early 80s, the biggest problem was we had too much demand not enough supply. And the proof of that is we had inflation. Sure. That is per se evidence of that being the case. We always used to say inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Right. So you could argue that we did need to do things to help uh, encourage the creation, the production uh, of more goods and services. And that's what the supply side theory w- was about. Today, we have a persistent problem of deflation. And the proof of that is the current level of interest rates, which are ridiculously low 10 years into an economic expansion. It's absurd. Now, this is per se evidence, I think, that we have a a lack of aggregate demand. We have the reverse problem. So we don't need a supply-side solution. We need a demand-side solution. And my own preferred solution would be something that Trump allegedly is in favor of, which is a big infrastructure program. Right. That would be the medicine the economy needs. Which raises the obvious point why you would think that is the easiest thing for any president to get through. There's support on the left, there's support on the right. Everybody gets a little a little gravy to spread around their own district because it's going to be a national spend, whether it's highways or rails or electrical grid or ports or fill in the blank. There's a ton of infrastructure needed. Why wasn't that the first thing that was done? Why wasn't something passed 
you would think that's a no-brainer to get. If you want to chalk up a victory, mm-hmm. what and, and you could even tie it to a little bit of uh, overseas profit repatriation, yeah. which people both hate a special... Some people hate a special uh, one-time tax cut, but not as much as they hate all these these billions of dollars mm-hmm. overseas. Why could not that have, have been done first and been passed, and here's the win, uh, you know, chalk this up uh, for your win column? I don't know for sure, but what I think happened is Trump was simply misled by congressional Republicans. Mm-hmm. They lied to him. Really? Well, one of the things they lied to, I, I mean, Trump is on record as saying he thought an Obamacare repeal bill was going to be on his desk the first time he walked into the Oval Office after taking the oath of office. Because remember, the, con- the Congress was going had been in session for three weeks before he took the oath of office. And so, yeah, I, but he also said, "I have a plan right here, and it's going to cover well, everybody and be well, cheaper." Well, but but I think he did think that Republicans in Congress had been working since 2009 on a replacement for Obamacare because that's what they've been saying. Well, they've been for eight years, to, right? But so, and, and so I think nobody had done anything. He thought for eight he thought years? there was a bill that somebody had written and was was ready to go. Wait, so the whole time we've had what? 53 votes to repeal Obamacare. Nobody on the Republican Party ever actually drafted a, Not, here's a legitimate repeal and replace no, bill. there was nothing. There was That's absolutely nothing. Because, you see, the Republican plan was simply to, to abolish Obamacare. They never intended to replace it with anything. Once you give 30 or 40 million people health insurance, you can't just yank that away. That what you Suddenly you've created a giant... Uh, health crisis by well they th- they didn't see it that way I don't know why I don't really understand how they think about these things anymore but it's clear that that's what what they were trying to do and Trump the problem was Trump believed them and remember he screwed everything up by saying no no we're not going to just repeal Obamacare we're going to have repeal and replace so it was really a, a, a Trump who upset the apple cart by insisting that there be a replacement. He didn't have one, but, but he is assumed- rational. If you think about it, be, you know, once you give somebody an entitlement, it's all but impossible to remove it. So the thought process was, for whatever reasons, we don't like Romney Care, which eventually became Trump uh, Obamacare, but that traces its roots to the Heritage Foundation and a fairly yeah. right-wing yeah. free market um, roots. The idea of replacing it with something sounded great on the campaign trail. Nobody had done any of the heavy lifting. I'm still apparently has no staff people who could have picked up the phone and called Paul Ryan and said, "Could you please send us over, you know, HR 2363 or whatever it is your legislation is, so that we can take a look at it for your Obamacare?" There was nothing. There was nothing there. And, and I think this was true of so many other things. I think he thought that the Republicans had a fully developed tax reform plan, and all he had to do was endorse it. There was nothing there. There was nothing. What have these guys been doing for eight years, other than Compl- opposing Obama? That's it. That's it. That's well, all they did. Uh, I mean, I you, find— You've th- argued that the Republicans are better as the out-of-party ragers—out-of-power yeah. ragers than right. actually having to run government. Yes, that's quite clear. But I wa- I'm not going to let the Democrats entirely off the hook here. They don't deserve to be let Why off the hook. Why couldn't they have drafted a, 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 an infrastructure plan 
Why couldn't they, you know, a couple weeks ago we had a big debate in the Senate and the House about we're going to allow, we're going to put $1.5 trillion of increase in the national debt into the budget to accommodate the revenue loss from the tax plan we're going to pass. Why didn't some Democrat offer as a substitute a $1.5 trillion infrastructure plan? Uh-huh. See, they, they don't have the sense to do that. The, the, you're it, absolutely right on that, because given the lack of staff and the lack of anyone willing to roll up their sleeves in the Trump administration and do the heavy lifting, why haven't Schumer and company said, hey, you wanted a profit repatriation and an infrastructure bill? <clears throat> Here. You don't even have to put our names on it. Slap your name on it and work with this. I think the problem is the Democrats have internalized the basic Republican view of the world, okay? They argue within parameters that are established by the Republicans. So the Republicans come out and say, we're going to have a tax cut. The Democrat reaction instinctively is Where to say, and how much? Say, say, well, we don't want to cut it for the for the rich. We need to tilt this more towards the middle class, but we're still but we still agree with the principle that we need a huge tax cut. We just want to reorient it uh, towards our constituents. So they're anchored on whatever the Republicans right. say. Right. So so they don't seem to have the guts or the intelligence to say, we don't need a goddamn tax cut. What we need is all this other stuff. Uh, we've got problems with climate change. We have one hurricane after another. We need to be building seawalls across, you know, the the entire southern part of the United States. Look at Puerto Rico. I mean, this and and or Florida they, or Texas or and and why Democrats are afraid to talk about the seventy-five million dollars that Donald Trump has spent so far just golfing. Well, you know, if it was Obama, the Republicans would be screaming about it. Well, of course, it. they did. They did scream about it. It's very easy to find Trump's tweets about it. So, so there's two things I have to remind you, Bruce, and these are these are very, very important. One is the United States is the most heavily taxed country in the world, and second, climate change is a Chinese hoax. We know both of those from from some of the tweets from the president. So, why should we worry about either of those things? Well, because the truth matters, and those are lies. Thank you for the... Nicely (laughs) nicely done. So before I get to my favorite questions, there's one last question I have to ask you on the issue of the truth matters. So you you followed a fairly standard D.C. career arc. Uh, You worked uh, in Congress, then you worked in the White House, and then you left to write some books and work with some think tanks. You were at both Cato and the National Center for Policy Analysis. I was also at the Heritage Foundation. At the Heritage Foundation. but And I used to read a lot of these white papers that came mm-hmm. out of the think tanks decades ago. Mm-hmm. But my understanding of these think tanks are they are no longer objective pursuers <laughs> of the truth, starting from a, a certain fundamental ideological perspective now it's what sort they're just shills for hire. What sort yes. of stuff can we crank out to pursue what this industry wants or or that uh, association wants? Have think tanks lost their ability to objectively think? Uh, pretty much. I mean, if you're talking about Washington think tanks, I think for the that's most part, true. yeah. Uh, there may be still some affiliated with universities and such that are uh, worth uh, paying attention to, but in a way, the the internet made the think tank as it was originally created, uh, superfluous. Because what think tanks did is they they were the intermediaries between the policy people 
and the academics, who theoretically were the, the sources of, of, of original uh, deep thinking. And so the idea, at least when I was at the Heritage Foundation in the 1980s, is, okay, you know, we'll talk to Milton Friedman. He'll give us his ideas. You write them up in a way that a policymaker can understand. We'll pump this stuff out onto Capitol Hill because there's the pre-Internet era. You had to have a printed documentation right. that was written in a short way, uh, easily understandable. And that was what our job was, to be the middleman. Huh, quite but, interesting. Uh, Let's uh, let's get to some of um, our favorite questions. These are what I ask all of our guests. Let let's start with um, your background. Tell us the most important thing that people don't know about your background. Well, these days it would probably be that I was a senior fellow at the Heritage Foundation for two <laughs> years, or that my boss in the White House was a guy named Gary Bauer, who's one of the uh, uh, epitomes of of. Evangelical Christianity. Um, tell us about some of your early mentors. Who do you think was most influential in shaping your views and career? Oh, uh, uh, Jack Kemp was unquestionably uh, the person who influenced my thinking. I remember when I used to work for him, I would sometimes think I was wrong, and or he was wrong and I was right, and eventually I realized he was right and I was wrong. <laughs> and I've discovered that about a lot of other people. There was a... Uh, an economist named Herb Stein that I sure. used to argue with all the time. And the last, and only, probably the last time forever that I was at the American Enterprise Institute, I, I confess that in every instance in which Herb, I thought Herb was wrong and I was right, it was the other way around. And, you know, so I, I've, I've been, and, I, and you pointed out my comment about Paul Krugman, so I'm trying to uh, make amends. <laughs> Tell us um, what other politicians influenced your thinking about both partisan politics and policy well if you're talking today i'm still educating myself i spent an enormous amount of time reading the literature uh, uh especially and i've learned that i have to study things like psychology right and sociology uh that in political science that to try to understand why things are so screwy and the academics are only just barely scratching the surface. But I do believe the psychologists will eventually be the ones who tell us. That, how to st that seems to be taking place on, on economics and, and investing for sure. Tell us about some of your favorite books. Oh, I hate to say this, but I don't actually read very many books mm -hmm. because I read all day long on the internet. I'm just kind of a junkie about this sort of stuff. Uh, one of the things I talk about that I'm sure you're familiar with is is an RSS reader, uh -huh. uh, which I depend on absolutely to keep me up to date on all the stuff that is being published all around the internet. And it, it aggregates it and brings these specific items from specific websites to me directly. So I don't have to I never go to home pages anymore. I just read what comes to me in my RSS reader. And I do this all day long. I get thousands and thousands of items that I have to scroll through. And so the last thing I want to do is read for pleasure. And secondarily, when I write things, I like to be able to link to them. I think links are underutilized by readers. And, partly, and you reference that in the book as well, that when you're writing, you yeah. have to not only source specific details, but source um, your sources via a link. 
Well, that's right. I think that a lot of writers are lackadaisical about using links, which may explain why readers are lackadaisical. I'll give you an example. I, I, was, I used to write for a publication, and one day I was writing something where I quoted Hillary Clinton when she was Secretary of State, and I quoted her, and I provided a link that went to the Department of State website where you could find the text of the speech that she gave and, and where they would have found the quote. Which is a thing to do. Right. Well, later I, was, I needed to find that quote again, so I went to my article, clicked on the link. It did not take me to the State Department. It took me to some random article on that, organ, that publication's website that happened to mention Hillary Clinton in passing. It was not documentation for the statement that Got I made. It. it had nothing whatsoever to do Who with what I— Who changed that? The editor. But whoever checks your own links after they're published, you see? I don't know how much of this sort of thing goes on, and, and it's not the writer's fault. Uh, and, and, and so anyway, I think there's a lot of blame to go around here. But I do think that um, quite often I'll come across some story that sounds quite interesting. I'll click on the link, and it turns out it's, it's, it's a secondary source. And I have to click three or four more times to find the original source. I think writers should do more to try to give credit to the original source that broke a story or is the primary source. Makes a lot of sense. So we've seen huge changes in politics and policies. What do you think is the single biggest shift that is affecting the state of, of modern politics? I think it's that the Overton window, which we discussed earlier, has change. moved very sharply to the right so that what used to be considered the center is now the left wing, so to speak, of policy debate. And uh-huh. all of the debate takes place between the center and the far, far right. And the right is very clever about continuously pushing to the right so that positions, outright racism, neo-Nazism, people going around carrying flags with Nazi uh, the, the swastika. swastika on them, is not treated as outrageous or beyond the pale. It's, oh, that's what the right is doing today. On all sides. This is Good just... Find people on all sides. It's, well, that's, uh, that's... it's crazy. That it's, see, I don't see that as a right-left thing. I th- there's a spectrum of right-left, and as you described, beyond the pale. That sort of stuff is beyond the pale, and what's but disappointing... it's not treated as beyond the pale. That, that's what's it's so disappointing. It's reported as if this is normal behavior. I, I don't understand why there aren't more rational conservatives. And, and by the mm. way, you could look at National Review, screams about this. You could mm. look at American conservatives screaming about this. But you don't quite hear the same sort of pushback from, as you mentioned, Fox and, and other places. Certainly not to the same degree as NRO has just been all over this. It's amazing. Well, the, 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 the facade is cracking. I mean, I think the Corker flake business is, is potentially far-reaching in its impact because finally there are people articulating uh, views that perhaps you and I may have, but they have credibility because they are elected officials in the Republican Party. Corker is still chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He's in a position to actually do something. So let's get to our final question. Um, final two questions. If some millennial or recent college grad came to you and said, I'm interested in a, cal- a career in either politics or policy, what sort of advice would you give them? Well, just as a uh, 
pure career element, I think the health-ish area is going to be a huge continuing growth area. The baby boomers are getting older. Uh, gerontology, care for my generation. I think this is the way the wealth will be transferred from our generation to the younger generation. They basically are going to have to take care of us in our old age, and that's fine. And then our final question, what is it that you know about politics today you wish you knew 30 years ago when you were first getting started? Well, uh, you know, that's a continuing problem. Uh, I, I wish I had understood tribal loyalty mm-hmm. and the extent to which people on the right have are not motivated by ideas. They, it's just guts. And, and it's all about the tribe. And if you're a Republican and you're saying something and I'm a Republican, I have to support you. I have to agree with you. I'm not allowed to in, independently evaluate what you said because I might discover you're wrong. And if, and if I discover you're wrong, I, that creates a crisis for me. So it's better if I just don't even think about it. I just lockstep say, yes, you know, hail, hail Hitler, you know. <laughs> Us versus them. We have been speaking with Bruce Bartlett, author of The Truth Matters, uh, and former Ronald Reagan and first George Bush uh, administration policy advisor. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple, iTunes, Overcast, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, wherever fine podcasts are sold, and you can see any of our previous 160 or so such conversations. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack team here who helps put together the podcast each week. Medina Parwana is my producer and audio engineer. Taylor Riggs is my booker. Michael Batnick is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>